left versus the right in the right corner. It's heavyweight king Curtis Lewa in the left corner. It's Anthony Weiner. It's a 77 WABC debate. Heavyweight slugfest on New York's news and talk station 77 WABC. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Anthony Weiner. I am the left part of Left versus Right. Thank you so much for joining us today. Curtis is going to be joining us in the second hour, and everyone here at WABC Studios is a little bit nervous because this is the first time that I'm standing at the A microphone taking calls and starting us off. I'm a little nervous myself, to be honest with you. This Left versus Right slugfest thing so far, mm. mostly it's been Curtis carrying me because he is, let's face it, Perhaps the most iconic person on radio nowadays. I mean, I grew up, feels like I grew up listening to Curtis. Curtis and I have spent a lot of time circling each other in political and press worlds as, uh, as we've both developed. Um, this is an exciting moment for me. I'm really glad that you're joining us. Our call in line is 800-848-WABC, 800-848-9222. Let me talk a little bit about what we're going to do this first hour, and we're going to try to pick up a little bit of what Curtis and I have been doing the last the last few weeks as we've tried this thing out, um, the response has been very good. People have been tuning in and listening. But there's also been kind of like a question about whether or not we're really living up to this ideal that John Cancibatinas had in mind when he put us together, this notion of this left-right, well, what, what the lead-in bumper says. Like, has it been enough of a slugfest? Because as it turns out, Curtis and I have many cases agreed with one another and Maybe that's good, maybe it's not. But I have a theory that I want to share with you, and maybe we have a chance to take some calls about it, and I'm going to try to give you a couple of examples. I have a theory that part of the reason we are so divided as a country is because a lot of the media is constructed in this very left versus right way, and that it is in the interest, perhaps, of some of these companies, and WABC is not among them. I'm sitting here, you know, Anthony Weiner clearly a, a, a well-known, progressive, liberal person. Um, WABC is not among them. We're trying something a little bit different here. But I come from a, perhaps a different place than most progressive left congressmen, elected officials, media pundits come from. And I'll tell you what I mean. When, when I came up in politics, I represented a city council district in southern Brooklyn in Sheepshead Bay and in Manhattan Beach and Brighton Beach that when I left it, um, it became Republican. It's a Republican district today. It, it is not a knee-jerk leftist district. It's not a very progressive liberal district. And because of that, when I represented it in the city council, I had to be pretty good on figuring out not only how to speak to people that agreed with me all the time, but people who I wanted to persuade. And I also had to be pretty good at persuading my constituents at the time that I was listening to them, that just because I had a D next to my name didn't mean that I wasn't listening to them. When I went on to become a member of Congress, one of, you know, a couple of the things that I was known for was known for advocating for single-payer health care. I was known for advocating strongly for Democratic, you know, office holders and advocating for them. I, when I ran for mayor, as I ran as a Democrat. But I represented 
some of the more conservative quarters of New York City. I represented places like Glendale and Middle Village and Breezy Point and Broad Channel. And even on the Brooklyn side of my district, I represented places like Borough Park and Flatbush and Sheepshead Bay and others. Now, I didn't always do well there uh, um, every every first uh, Tuesday following the first Monday in November of every even year. I, I you know, I sometimes had to work really hard. Um, in 2010, the last time that I stood for re-election, I ran against a guy named Bob Turner, and it was right after Obamacare had passed. And um, that was a tough election. He gave me a run for my money, and when I left and I resigned, and I'm going to get to that um, in a minute, uh, Bob Turner wound up winning my seat. Um, and, but the thing that I – the reason I point that out in the context of this show is that when Obamacare was being debated – uh, uh, Nancy Pelosi, who I think she was the speaker at the time, she sent out an email to all of her members saying, listen, we're getting our butts kicked in, the, in, in, in these town hall meetings and we're getting our butts kicked in the media. Her recommendation was lay low. Do your best to try to turn down the volume. And I had not, not only did I not lay low, I had 18 town hall meetings all around my district and some of the most conservative parts of my district included on Obamacare. And what I found is that when you honor people by showing that you're going to stand up in front of them and defend your position but also hear what they have to say, it winds up being a good conversation. It becomes a very American patriotic thing to be doing even if you are on the wrong side of the issue in the terms of the way someone might be discussing it. They do develop a respect and that respect is what leads me to be sitting here today um, talking to all of you. Um, Curtis is going to be coming in in the second hour, but in the interim, you, dear listener, are going to be that other side. But let me tell you another thing that I think is a truism about American politics today. We are not a 50-50 country. We are not a country where half of us believe one thing and half of us believe the other. It might sometimes sound that way. It might sometimes appear that way. Um, but again, we we are – we live in a media environment where conflict and even the name of our show, Left Versus Right, you know, our, the logo for our podcast, you can get it, the Big Apple Podcast, um, the Red Apple Podcast Network. Even the logo is two boxing gloves. When we had our press conference announcing it, you know, the photographer asked me to put on the boxing gloves and I said, that's a step, a step too far. But I don't believe we're a 50-50 country. I believe we are a 10-10-50-30 country. And here's what I mean. I believe that 10% of our country – believes that every single thing that the Democrats say is true and gospel. Every single thing a Democratic office holder, including the president, says is true and gospel. And they will violently dissuade you from even having a conversation entertaining the idea that any other opinion is correct. And then I think 10 percent is on the other side. That says that anything that Joe Biden does is irretrievably evil that anything a Republican office holder does is absolutely right, that anything Donald Trump has ever done is absolutely right, and that anyone who disagrees with them is not only, uh, not only someone they don't agree with, but someone they can't even tolerate being in the same room with. So that's 10% on each side. And then I think there's a 50% group that I call the CSPs, the common sense persuadables. They are the people that are the ones that decide elections. There's the ones that decide, you know, the direction of our country ultimately. And I think that those are the people for whom politics and public debates are not the be-all and end-all. 
They are a part of their life, but they're not the purpose of their life. That they look at it things through the lens of how does this impact the future of my family? How does this make my life? How do these things impact my life? What kind of a, a, a world do I want my children growing up in, et cetera? And they want to hear what you have to say, and they're not dummies. They're smart people. If they, if they think you're trying to Zoom them or they're not being respectful or if you think that you're not bringing facts to the table, then they'll go in the other direction. So that's 50%. So for those of you doing the math at home, including my math teacher mom, Fran Wiener from Midwood High School, that's 50% is those swedos, 10% of the extremes. And then there's 30% who I hope tune into this show. And those are the people who have checked out. They have said to themselves, you know what? This isn't on the level. This is performance art. This is the Christians and the Lions. This is WWE, with all due respect and deference to my friend Peter Rosenberg. It's not legit. And to those people, this country cannot be all it aspires to be without their engagement. And I want this program to be a place that they can come, hear two people discussing the issues, and have a sense that, you know what? All right, maybe I should listen in again. I do get a sense that, that they're not calling people names. They're not yelling at each other and shouting at each other. They do have a sense of respect for one another. So that's the way I look at you, the radio audience. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe those numbers are off. I want to hear what you have to say. Like I said, you're playing the part for the first hour of Curtis's, of Curtis. You know, f- feel free to, 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 to dial in. I've got a subject I'm going I'm to raise here in a moment. 800-848-9222, 800-848-WABC. And I want to make one final uh, of, uh, final point. You know, so that's my view of what I think the audience is. But where does that leave me? Where does that leave me, Anthony Weiner, right now trying to figure out how to do a radio show for the first time? And I guess with that, I have a couple of kind of principles. You know, first, I consider all ideas honorable. You don't have to be right, in my opinion, to, be, to, have an honor, to, to honorably approach a, a, an idea. And I do believe the facts are real. I don't believe that facts are sometimes this or sometimes that. I believe that ideas are to be honored and that facts are to be respected. The second thing I believe in and that I hope that we do on this show is go below the surface. Um, Joe Biden is a jerk is a position, but I don't consider that something that gets us to a place. Even subjects like bail reform. Let's end um, cash uh, bail, which is what uh, some progressives say. Let's bring it back, some conservatives say, but let's figure out what's beneath that. Where do, okay, so what do you do with the human beings if you're not going to give them cash bail when we have Rikers at 160% of capacity? So I believe in getting below the surface. And the final thing is a little bit about me. I believe that I not only respect the debate, but I also want to respect the participants. Um, this may be ironic coming from me, but I don't think yelling during a debate gets her very far. Gentleman no, thinks that if he gets up and yells hard, he's going to intimidate people into believing he's right. He is wrong. The gentleman is wrong. The gentleman is providing cover for his colleagues rather than doing the right thing. So <laughs> I, I, I wanted that cut to be ironic. Um, I realize now I sounded really nuts in that clip, but that you should know. That was from 2010. We were debating. Now I was someone I, I do call a friend. Peter King, who's on, on, on air here frequently and I enjoy listening to. Um, I, it was great TV. It was great, a YouTube moment, but I don't believe that it got the debate very far, and I respect the participants. And that brings to me, um, 
I know that there are many people within the sound of this broadcast, 50,000 watts of clear channel going all the way up to Canada, all the way south to Louisiana, going as far west as the, as the, as the Mississippi River, who might say, you know, Anthony Weiner, I have no time for Anthony Weiner talking about being respectful when he has done things that I don't respect. And I can't argue with that point. You've heard me talk about it on this show. There are things that, that are in my past that I did in in a period of what can only be described as madness and and under um, compulsions that were driven by addiction that I now I'm in treatment and recovery for. But if someone wants to call up and say, listen, I believe what you did and the things that you did, I can never forgive you for. And I believe that you don't haven't earned my respect. I, I, you know what? I don't think it, I don't plan on talking long about it. But if people want to call and say that, I, I understand that I've got that coming. You, I wouldn't be on the radio if I didn't think that we had to address that elephant in the room. But what I will say is this, is part of my recovery is uncovering and not, um, and not hiding and not being living in shame and talking honestly about things. And one of the ways that I hope to be of service, the way I hope of practicing my 12-step is to be here on the radio so people can say, you know what, he's trying. He's trying to further the debate. He's trying to have a conversation that is valuable. He's trying to change the way that we have conversations in this, in this country and, and, and in our area for the better. Um, and so if you do want to call in and you want to talk about that, you want to call me a funny name, if you want to say something, I mean, like I said, it's not going to get us very far, but um, I appreciate that people have those, those thoughts about me. And I know that I owe many people within the sound of this broadcast an immense I had constituents that I let down, um, no more than I let down um, my son Jordan and uh, my now ex-wife Huma. Um, but uh, I hope that we can also have a show here that provides some element of service because I know there are a lot of people out there um, who have gone through things that are much worse than I have um, that I have ever gone uh, uh, gone through and have come out the other side. And hopefully, I can be of service to them. So when we get back. We're, I'm going to talk about one of those issues and just set it up and because um, uh, I want to hear what you have to say. And just so for those of you who tuned in a little bit late, Curtis is going to be coming in for the for the second hour. Um, hopefully he's listening on his way in and, and gives me some some tips. In the meantime, I encourage you all to call in 800-848-9222, 800-848-WABC. And when we come back on the other side, we're going to have a conversation about inflation. But not the conversation you are used to having, Um, not the conversation about what government has done wrong, what Biden has done right or wrong, not a conversation about um, about some law that might need to get passed, although we'll eventually get to there. But basically a conversation about what someone like me, who is a Democrat but believes strongly in capitalist markets, what responsibility I have. And what I have to say about some of the accusations that this is a government problem. And we'll take you out with the voice of Roger Daltrey and The Who. It's the left versus the right. It's a 77 WABC debate. Heavyweight slugfest. 77 WABC. It's the left versus the right. In the right corner, it's heavyweight king Curtis Lewa. In the left corner, it's Anthony Weiner. It's a 77 WABC debate. Heavyweight slugfest. 
on New York's news and talk station, 77 WABC. Welcome back, everyone, to Left versus Right, Curtis Leo and Anthony Weiner Show. Curtis is going to be checking in in the second hour. By the way, that song, you know, when I first heard it growing up in New York, woke up in a Soho Doria. I thought they meant New York, but, you know, this is the when it's, it's, it's funny. The who was the first, my first entree into real music. I, I was uh, I was a guy who liked, the, who liked Kiss when I was, uh, you know, just starting to like music. I like Kiss and who was the first sign of I was starting to mature. Um, but no, it's not Soho in uh, the in uh, south of Houston. It's someplace over the pond. Um, so I set out who I thought, you know, what I wanted the debate to be like, what I wanted the conversation to be like. And I want to talk a little bit about um, inflation and the cost of goods and what we should do about it and a way to look at it. And I see the board's already filling up. I've got a couple of calls about it. Joe in Union City is waiting to talk about it. But let me set something up here. And for those of you who would like to call in, be part of the conversation, 800-848-WABC, 800-848-9222. So it's a bit of a trick question to start. So what causes inflation? Well, people might say it's the cost of this or the cost of that or monetary policy or fiscal policy. But the answer that I was looking for was, well, when prices go up, when companies – Purveyors of services and products raise their prices. You know, you can get into why they do it, and it could be any number of reasons, but ultimately it comes to why it, that's what we're talking about. So we've seen a rise in just about every type of price, gasoline first among them. You know, we've had rise in prices 25, 30, 40% recently. But it's not just that. Amazon, for example, recently raised their price of Amazon Prime, went up, I guess, 17%. Um, Netflix just got a text that Netflix had raised our price 10.7 percent. Nike has raised their prices in the last several weeks by about 10.5 percent. FedEx raised their prices between 6 and 8 percent. They're raising their prices. Now, one argument that would be made by them is that, look, there's our cost of everything is going up. Energy prices are going up. The cost of labor is going up. As more people return to the workforce, it's harder to find workers. And it's not just those kind of luxury things that I listed. I mean, you can do without Amazon. You can do without Netflix. But the cost of beef has gone up 32%. The cost of chicken has gone up 20%. The cost of pork has gone up 13%. I mean, protein is now, these things have gone up through the roof. But what is not, what is not discussed enough, um, and this is true on the left and on the right, what is not discussed enough is, I mean, is, why that is happening from the perspective of these companies and whether or not they're using what are natural things going on in the economy to their advantage and are gouging us. And there's a lot of data that shows that it's the case. Now, I don't want to minimize the conversation that some people have had about things like the XL pipeline and drilling, and I'm fine talking about those things. And I see a few people on the board who want to, and that's fine. But I'm going to give you some facts here. Amazon's quarterly profits, and remember, I just said that they raised their their pricing. Amazon's quarterly profits were up 75%, $35 billion. Netflix quarterly profits 
were up 96%. Nike's quarterly profits last quarter were up 125%. FedEx is up 307%. And so I say to you that, okay, there are some things out there that are driving prices up, but at what point do you start to say, huh, I wonder if these companies are using the 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 sense that we have that, okay, prices are going up to make the prices not only go up what they need to for them to make a profit, but use it as an opportunity to squeeze us for every last time. And gas prices is, is the, the one that, that is most galling to me. Because while there's been a lot of talk about what government should or should not do, and like I said, I believe there are some things that, that we should do, and I have largely agreed with Curtis on some of the things that we've, that we've talked about. You know, there are this conversation about should we let more drilling on federal lands where there are 6,000 federal leases that are out there now that haven't even been tapped. The, the, the companies have, but they just haven't used. So ExxonMobil, BP, Shell, and Chevron combined had $30 billion in quarterly profits in the last quarter. And for those of you who have not been keeping track of the futures market, the, the, the price of oil has actually dropped from about 140 to 100, under $100. We didn't see a drop at the pump. And the question I'm asking is where does this fit on the left-right divide? I mean do people who are liberal believe that Jeff Bezos should make $81 billion more during COVID? He, he went from being a, a, a hundred billionaire, which is plenty, to now being worth $186 billion. While the rest of us have been struggling, he is doing amazingly well. So much. How about this for a crazy number? The top two richest people in America – now make as much as the bottom 40%, including everybody on the, uh, uh, everybody within the sound of my voice just about. So I understand we want to argue about what government can and, and can't do. But one thing that we certainly can do is say to a company like Tyson, hey, Tyson, you're raising the price of beef 32%, chicken 20%, pork 13%. You made a quarterly profit of $40 billion, which is 140% increase from the quarter before. Maybe. Just maybe we should be saying to them, look, you're doing very well here. Let's return a little something to the American people. Let's do let's be responsible, particularly in a moment where the world is quite literally um, literally at war. Just a little food for thought to get us started today. Let's go to the phones. Like I said, if you'd like to be part of the conversation, this is left versus right. Curtis Sliwa is coming in at three. Um, I'm taking it until then. Um, I'm still a little bit nervous. I haven't broken anything yet here. Dial in if you like. 800 848 WABC, 800-848-9222. And I I mentioned that we had a call on the board about oil prices. Um, It looks like he's he's fallen off. I'm sorry that he has. Um, But let me me go to someone who wanted to talk about my theory about the opening year. Roy in Brooklyn wants to talk a little about my theory of how voters are divided up out there. Hey, Roy, how are you? I'm doing fine. How are you? I'm well, Roy. Thank you for calling. Yeah, let me first congratulate you for bouncing back. Uh, you you really amazed me, and uh, I don't agree with um, much of your political positions, but I do respect you. So that's uh, one thing I'd like to say. And I thank you, and I respect you, Roy. What do you have to say today? <laughs> well, the one thing um, uh, you said earlier was that um, the elections were broken down by 50, 30, 10, and 10. And if if that were true— why is it that during the Obama election, the blacks voted 92 percent along racial lines? That always disturbed me because I never thought that 
our Constitution should be, you know, written in such a way that people vote along racial lines. Look, it's a, it's a fair question, and you can do a lot of analysis about why some communities, and it's not just racial uh, racial division. There are some, you know, neighborhoods that have traditionally voted a certain way. Now, it's uh, it's not the best possible example since people in the, in communities of color, African American particular, m- uh, voted in enormous numbers for Barack Obama out of a sense of pride, out of out of a sense of uh, in in combining with his fact that he's a Democrat, and that's traditionally been a place. That um, that many communities of color have felt more comfortable. I mean, when John Katsimatidis ran for uh, for the the owner of uh, of the station ran for mayor, the Greek American community turned out. I mean, I think they actually had 140 percent of Greek votes uh, uh, turned out for him. I don't think that that's necessarily a problem. But the point that I was making is not even how people vote; it's how people approach issues of the day. And the point that I was making, Roy, and I really do appreciate your checking in, the point that I was making is that people are not dogmatic about how they break down issues, by and large. By and large, if they, they look at an issue, they'll listen to the conversation, they'll try to make an informed decision for themselves, and that there's a lot more give there than sometimes people get the impression when they listen to talk radio. And talk radio, and I understand why, talk radio is the opinion business, but here at WABC, we try to do news and views, news at the top of our straight down the middle and then views. But if the views are only people that are 100 percent certain that what they're saying is the gospel truth and that everyone who argues against them is venal, that's where I think we miss the boat with that 50 percent. That was the point that I was making about the 50 percent. Um, let's try uh, Adrian and Bayside who calling in about Obamacare. How are you doing, Adrian? Hey, Mr. Weiner. How are you? I'm well, thank God. Okay. I wanted to address the uh, Obamacare that you mentioned early on. At the time I was working, I am currently retired. But I want you to know that I was paying for my own uh, insurance, health insurance at the time. And my health insurance right after Obamacare went, it it jumped up by over, over 50%. Okay, so... uh, my inflation, my own personal inflation occurred during the Obamacare. I hear you. Well, Adrian, let me ask you, let, let me ask you a question. Are you, are you have a private insurance policy now? No. Are, are no, you, I have uh, Medicare now. Medicare. Do you like Medicare? Do I like Medicare? Yeah. Yes, I like Medicare. Well, here's why I ask. You know, Medicare is single-payer, government-run health care, just like um, – the Indian Health Service, just like the Veterans Administration, just like Medicaid. And I point that out because, you know, when people talk about their critique of Obamacare, and Obamacare is not single-payer health care. It's not. It's, ins- it's, it's a private insurance model. I would have done it differently. But it argues basically that if we, the American people, all get together and we start to buying things as a group, we can use market forces to bring down costs. Now, the fact is that these years after Medicaid was passed in 2010, the average price for an uninsured, for an uninsured person to go out and get insurance and the free, on the open market, so to speak, is reduced by about 40%. It's less than it used to be. And the insurance companies still are doing fine. But if you're on Medicare, you are on a single-payer system. You should go out and say to your neighbors, I love single-payer health care. And that's the point that I've always made is that we don't need to reinvent any wheel. We have this very American solution called Medicare, 
and that that is a model that works for us. You don't have to talk about the Canadian system or the British system. Um, Obamacare is not exactly what I've always advocated for, but I think that we've learned now these years later that um, that the um, that the single payer model of Medicare really has worked for a lot of people. Uh, let's go to Ralph in New Rochelle. Ralph, what do you have to say today? It's a great first off. It's great first off to hear you back on the radio. I hope you do well. Thank you, Ralph. And just questioning: Do these corporations? pay taxes on these profits that they generate? Not enough, in no. my view. I well, mean, no, 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 I didn't ask you. Not enough. I guess, do they pay taxes on those profits? In most cases, in most cases. Taxes yeah, on it, payroll for the people that work for them? In most cases, well, that's different. They, they pay payroll tax, but they don't pay taxes much on profit. Do you know how many of the, of, of the top of, of the Fortune 500 companies pay zero tax? About yeah, 25% of them pay zero tax. And actually, Amazon, let me just make this point. Amazon's taxes during that period, they, their taxes actually went down during, that, during the period of COVID. Well, then why is it that politicians like to give all these tax breaks to have those businesses to come in to certain areas to generate jobs? Why is that that it's a, you know, a giveaway for the large corporation, but that they want them there? Is that because they foster other economic activity that help the people in, in that, you know, area? Well, it, it's 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 a, it's a it, it's a great question. And Ralph put together two different issues, but they're related in a way. First of all, it, it is almost beyond dispute at this point that major corporations have ways of making sure that they don't pay their fair share of taxes. It is an easy thing to do to make sure that they do. One of the things you can do is you can say if you make – pick a number. Let's say 100 percent profit, 60 percent profit. You can simply say for every dollar you make over that point, 50 percent of it we're going to take back for the people of the, of the, of the country and give everyone a, a little bit of a break. If we said to BP, for example, you can make profits, but when you start making exorbitant profits, we're going to take some of that money and we're going to give it to people so that they can afford to buy gas. But the second question you raise is, is actually an interesting one. It is this notion that we fall over ourselves as municipalities, as cities and states, to try to encourage these companies to move their businesses into our town. Um, Those things have very mixed results. Now, I don't want to relitigate the Amazon thing here in New York where Amazon had chosen to come to New York and the the people of the the, – basically Amazon changed their mind when they get – when when they got uh, too, too much resistance. I don't know if that's a great deal. I mean we said no to Amazon and I – Probably if I was mayor at the time, I would have fought to, to have them come here, but I'm not, I'm not sure I, I, I wasn't mayor at the time. Um, but I can tell you this. We've done an enormous amount of economic activity without providing incentives. And if, say, Goldman Sachs, they got a giant billion-dollar incentive to stay in New York, were they really going to move to Jersey City, home of the, one of the best college basketball teams in the country? Um, they might have, but I think that we too often throw tax dollars at those folks at well, as well. But – I think we're at least having the same conversation. You know, Ralph and I, we might not agree politically, but we both agree with this notion of making sure that we're getting value. If these companies are going to pay their fair share of taxes, I I don't think I would have the beef that I have today. But the point that I'm making is there wasn't anything forcing Amazon to raise their prices the way they did. They made extraordinarily uh, high amounts of, of profit and inflation or not. 
they are taking advantage of the situation today beyond their need. They're they're way beyond the rate of inflation of 5%, 6%, They're making 50 60 70% profits, and I think that that is, 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 is what the issue is. But like I said um, – there might be also there might be government policies that are in, 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 in that, that, that should be changed, like tax policy, like the way we we allow companies to offshore the money that they that they get. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, um, we can control we control government policy. That's what we like to talk about on a lot of these shows. And one of the things we can do is a windfall profits tax. And when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about how that might look if we were to provide one of those tax cuts because that would be a tax cut for them, a tax increase for them, but potentially a tax cut for all of you. Please join us when we come back. It's the left versus the right. It's a 77 WABC debate. Heavyweight slugfest. 77 WABC. It's the left versus the right in the right corner. It's heavyweight king Curtis Lewa in the left corner. It's Anthony Weiner. It's a 77 WABC debate. Heavyweight slugfest on New York's news and talk station. 77 WABC. Hey, the Who really does have a lot of intros that are good for radio. They kind of they have those little dial in slowly. Um, once again, welcome back to Left versus Right. Curtis Leo and Anthony Weiner. Curtis will be coming in at three o'clock. This is Anthony Weiner. It's uh, really my honor that you are joining us today. Um, if you'd like to get into the queue, eight hundred eight four eight WABC eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Just to reset the table, I kind of laid out at the beginning this notion that we're not a 50-50 country, that we're more kind of, we have fringes on both the left and the right, but basically most people, what I call CSPs, common sense, um, uh, uh, common sense persuadables. And uh, we've been talking a little bit about inflation, energy prices, tax policy. It's been an interesting conversation so far. Let's keep it going. And we have Peter in Staten Island. Peter, thank you for checking in today. Hi, Anthony. I want, first of all, I want to thank you. You know, you weren't one of the first people that uh, jumped in to help with this, the Droga Act over 20 years ago. And I remember it. I was reminded of it by somebody that called in Curtis's show last night. And I just want to thank you. You were there. I'm probably alive because of you and other people that fought because I have bad respiratory problems from the pile. I would do it over and over again, the little help that I did that day. And for about three days after, I had to get out of there when they came in because they had all the uh, gold and stuff in the building, and it only they could, they made all the civilians leave. So I left at that point. Probably that's why I'm still alive today. But uh, I just want to thank you. Well, I want to I want to thank you, Peter, and honor you. You know, <clears throat> it's it's decades now since September 11th, and. Um, there are still people who are listening to this program now who are slowly, and this is a tragic thing to say, who are slowly dying because of their service that day. Um, and the fact that it took, boy, it took about two decades for finally Congress to do the right thing to provide health care to those first responders. And I want to 
want to commend you for sticking in there. Um, it really wasn't a proud period for Congress. I know I made a little fun of the fact that I was yelling on the floor of Congress, but it did take us way too long to to um, to pay tribute and do the right thing by the, the the first responders down there. But I appreciate your you checking in, Peter. Um, next, let's go to uh, Mac in Jersey, in New Jersey. Hey, hi, Anthony. How are you? Thanks uh, for taking my call. I'm well, Mac. Thank you for calling. I, I like the premise, left versus right. Uh, I've been in a 12-step program for 24 years, so I always believe in giving everybody a chance. Thank you, sir. Uh, and I applaud you for that. That's great. It's, that's the, what you addressed when you first came on the air. My thought was how people will view you on this particular network, because this particular network is one of the last standing conservative networks where we really have a voice uh, as conservatives, as opposed to like the major media networks. And do you think people will try to say that this network lost its credibility because, look, they have Anthony Weiner on there? You know, I think that's not fair. But everything has become so political uh, in this country that I could see that possibly happening. And I have heard conservatives like Hannity, uh, badmouth Alec Baldwin as a radio host, several times. So, you know, this is what people do in this country now. They, we don't vote for the person we like. We vote against the person we hate. And hate is in everything. So I just wanted your take on how you feel about being on a conservative network. Yeah, it's it's a great question, and 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 thank you, Mac. I appreciate it, and uh, keep keep up the good work. Look, this is a question I've actually given a lot of thought to because people have asked it to me a lot. And there's two ways to approach it. One is, what is John Katzmatidis, who owns this network? What was he thinking when he tried to put this show together and gave me this opportunity? And I think from his perspective, I think he probably believes that there is nothing about being conservative that is being afraid of hearing what the other side has to say. That, that if, you, if you believe that your entire audience just wants to hear one person after another that agrees with, 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 with the, the, per, the last person they heard, that's one way to do a network. But another way to do it is to say, listen, we are going to stick to our knitting. We're going to have people with viewpoints. But we we are going to honor the debate by having different viewpoints on. And I got to tell you, you know, I I don't mind a good debate, as I said in the introduction. But the question I get is frequently from my more liberal friends is, you know, why don't you go on like MSNBC or something like that? I have no interest in that for a different reason, because I do believe that we only move forward as a country when we have the friction that happens with a competition of ideas. I don't believe – I believe that at WABC on a 50,000-watt station that has been around for 100 years now, that is one of the most august and famous brand names really in in radio history, that there are going to be people who tune in on a rainy Saturday afternoon and who might say, you know what? I'm hearing a little something different. I'm hearing Curtis and Anthony going back and forth on issues. They're respecting each other. They're airing out their differences. They're bringing some facts to the table. They're bringing a perspective to the table. I think that's the way we move forward as a country. Now, I could be wrong, and it could be that people really like it the way it is with everyone in their own little corner, in their own little silo. But I'm prayerful that that that's not the case. Um, and as far as you know, what people might think of me, and Mac, you'll appreciate this, this expression because it comes from the program, what other people think of me is none of my business. What I've got to try to do 
is um, is stick to what I think is the next right thing to do. And my way of being of service is to try to talk about these ideas. And if people disagree with me, I mean, I hope they don't turn off the radio. I hope they say, hey, this sounds a little bit different. I want to hear more. Um, but that's but who knows? It, 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 it might be that that all, all we really need is a bunch of stations where we can listen to people that we agree with. But I hope that's not the case. Um, let's go to Leo in Flatbush. Leo, you're on. Hey, how you doing? I'm well, Leo. How are you? Good. Hey, by the way, I hold you in high regard. Um, as a representative from the South Shore of Brooklyn, uh, and I know you're a Queens guy, but you represented New York in front of the House of Representatives regarding health care for our fallen veterans and our first responders in a way that was unbelievable. And I thank you for that. Thank you, Leo. And now I'm going to disagree with you. Excellent. Corporations pay taxes. They pay taxes on every end. So to say they don't pay, quote, income tax is a total misrepresentation and a liberal talking point. If you buy a hot dog for a dollar and sell it for $2, as you did that, you just drove it somewhere, which cost you gas. You just set up a counter, which costs you rent. And you hired somebody to put it on a roll and put mustard on it. When you paid them, the government also took payroll taxes, Social Security, Medicaid, Medicare. So when you say that corporations got away with paying no taxes, it's really a terrible lie. I, I think I think I, I think I got out over my skis with that. That's not true that they don't pay taxes. I, but let me ask you this question, Leo, because I'm interested in this. If a ExxonMobil, in this period of, of international strife, drives the price, decides to raise the price by 70% when their cost of goods, cost of employment, cost of taxes goes up 20, 25%. Do they bear in, like, where is the philosophy from that makes you advocate for them? Like, why should, what should we, why should we not say, okay, you've, you're taking advantage of a situation now and our policy should be you can take advantage to a certain point, but no more. I'm not saying, I'm fine with ExxonMobil making profits. But at what point do they take this the international strife that exists, the cost increases that we're seeing in other places, and use it as an excuse to gouge? Where does price gouging, where does profit, reasonable profit stop and price gouging begin in your view, Leo? Okay. Well, I will not use the name ExxonMobil. I will just use any oil company. No reason to disparage anybody. But in today's world, What's happening right now, as far as the prices of gasoline, have nothing to do with cost, supply. It's all political. It's really terrible what's happening. And it's really happening on the back of the little guy like me. A hundred percent. And I'm an independent, you know. And if you want me to comment on how Exxon sets their prices or any oil company sets their oil prices, I will not do that. Yeah, I, I hear I you. What I will say is, but what I will say is that on one morning when I check the price of crude and it's ninety eight dollars, I see the price of gas at the pump, and then when I see it at one hundred and twenty, the price of the pump goes up much faster. <laughs> exactly. Then it comes down when it's back to ninety. 
Exactly. Exactly. Well, I appreciate that, Leo. And and I and I think everyone agrees that that we we look at this futures price that goes up by 20 percent and the price goes up 40 percent. When it comes down, it takes weeks or if not months for it to come back down. Well, when we come back on the other side of the break, we're going to talk about Jeff Bezos, a liberal guy that owns The Washington Post and whether we think it's reasonable that he should be 81 billion dollars richer over uh, over the time of the of the pandemic and whether any of us are even a billion dollars richer when we come back. Thanks for joining in. Versus the right. It's a 77 WABC debate. Heavyweight slugfest. 77 WABC. It's the left versus the right. In the right corner. It's heavyweight king Curtis Lewa. In the left corner. It's Anthony Weiner. It's a 77 WABC debate. Heavyweight slugfest. On New York's news and talk station, 77 WABC. Uh, yes. Also known as the M15 bus. Magic bus. You know, Curtis, welcome back, by the way. Welcome back to Left versus Right. I'm Anthony Weiner, Curtis Sliwa on the right. Curtis will be joining us at the 3 o'clock hour. He has been kind enough t- to uh, let me get the training wheels off here uh, for the last hour, and I've really enjoyed the conversation. It uh, laid out a little bit of a thesis about the real cause of inflation or prices going up, and some people had some interesting feedback. We've also reached a place that I thought we might, where people kind of agree that uh, profits are perfectly reasonable, that tax re- taxes come in different forms. But profits, the raw profit that's being made by a lot of companies today, um, looks a little bit like or a lot like they're taking advantage of the insecurity we all have in gouging the market. Someone has an interesting uh, comparison that they'd like to make. Kenny in New Jersey, thank you for waiting online for so long. Are you there, Kenny? Anthony? Hey, Kenny. How are you, sir? All right, sir. Listen, here's my point. I'm no fan of Jeff Bezos. But if you what you said at the beginning of the show is true, you believe in a capitalist system. He put his money up. He put risk capital up at the beginning, and he built a company. Now, today, um, Amazon employs 1.1 million people in this country. Who are we? Who is anybody to say that he can't earn whatever he invested in his annual salary is 1.6 million dollars so his money is being made through his stock how do you stop that yeah i you look kenny you you you're exactly right he doesn't make 186 billion dollars in salary but he is the concentrated place that enormous amount of wealth is I don't begrudge him that. I think that he should be rewarded for the accomplishment of that, of launching Amazon. It's part of our daily life. It's improved our economy. It's hired a lot of people. The point that I'm making, though, is that, you know, here we are. We're sometimes at each other's throats about government policy should be this or that and who should be allowed to drill where when these companies are doing extraordinarily well. They're doing extraordinarily well and individuals are doing extraordinarily well. And the point I would make is that Jeff Bezos has some responsibility 
not to be poor. I mean, he can be rich, but some responsibility to say, all right, at a certain point, we're concentrating so much of our of our wealth in one person's hands. You know, I have a provocative question. Maybe I'll hold off and, and, and hear what, what Curtis Lewa has to say, uh, who's coming up in a few minutes. Um, maybe this is a good way to end the hour because it's, it, it might take us off on a tangent if we didn't end soon. You know, we hear a lot about Putin's oligarchs. Do we have an oligarchy in the United States of America? I mean, if we consider that an oligarch is someone who is very wealthy, has a large amount of the concentrated wealth of a country, that gets that way with the help of government and who stays that way by trying to influence government policies um, and and has a lot of influence, right? I mean, look, I, I Jeff Bezos is liberal. I'm a pretty liberal guy. He owns the Washington Post. I like reading the Washington Post. He owns Amazon. I have Amazon Prime. I watched a movie on Amazon Prime just last night. But we have something that looks a little bit like an oligarchy in this country, don't we? When you have... Two people who have 40 percent of the wealth, when you have 1 percent of the country that controls 80 percent of the wealth, then you really do have concentration of money and power that might not be healthy. And the reason I mention in the context of this show, left versus right, is that I don't know if left or right really believes that's good. Right. I mean, no one listening to this program right now is an oligarch. No one listening to this program right now is a billionaire. Unless Michael Bloomberg, if that's you listening, I appreciate it. But it, that type of concentration means that there is less money in our pockets. That's just the way it is. Um, I mean, we can all grow and we can all we can all benefit. But there's no doubt that that type of concentration has a cost. And I also ask something else. And like, and I think that 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 the previous caller makes a good point. Like he that Jeff Bezos took certain risks. He came up with a good idea, he, he played it out, now he wants to go and he's going into space, whatever it is. That's fine. But the fact remains, why is that in the interest of anyone, left, right, or anyone, to say, okay, yeah, let's make sure he has $186 billion or $200 billion or $300 billion. Who advocates for, for these? And, and when people say, well, these people, no, no, it's a company. It's a collection of interests. Yes, we all invest. My 401k is doing relatively well because I'm sure – I don't know this for sure. I'm sure I have some Amazon in there in, in my retirement account for my years in, in government service. I just think that sometimes we all should say, all right, one thing we can all agree upon is it's fine if a 150 billionaire does not become a 190 billionaire. That <laughs> I don't necessarily benefit from that. Uh, it's been great. On, on the other side, Curtis Slewo, much to the relief of many of you listening – uh, will be here with me for Left versus Right on WABC. By the way, you can always get this in the form of a podcast by going to the Red Apple uh, Podcast Network or going to Amazon. Amazon, listen to me. Going to um, to Android or Google, wherever you get your podcast. Download it. On the other side, Curtis Slewa will be with us. It's the Left versus the Right. It's a 77 WABC debate. Heavyweight Slugfest. 77 WABC. It's the left versus the right. In the right corner, it's heavyweight king Curtis Lewa. In the left corner, it's Anthony Weiner. It's a 77 WABC debate. Heavyweight Slugfest. On New York's news and talk station, 77 WABC. 
Oh, this is not my song, that's for sure. Oh, endless, endless. But anyway, I am back. I'm back to join uh, Anthony Weiner for the last hour of the show. Uh, Anthony, I listened to parts of uh, the show coming in as you went solo. Unfortunately, uh, there was hail falling. Hail. Crashing into the SUV. As we had left uh, Bayside, where they were in the middle of their annual St. Patrick's Day parade. It was their first since the lockdown and pandemic. And I was getting into a very spirited discussion with my son, Anthony, who, as you know, is an intern here, just turned 18, has his senior ring, wants a brand new Dodge Charger, and has bagpipes. (laughs) And is trying to play the bagpipes, which is not an easy thing to do. For sure. And all these Irish guys there who uh, were firing up their bagpipes, they're trying to teach him. He's speaking a little bit of Gaelic. I don't know how he's learned that. He had his Irish flag. There's not a drop of Irish blood in Anthony Chester Sliwa. Uh, His mother is all Polish. I, part Polish, part Italian. His uh, stepfather, as you know, Governor David Patterson, there's no Irish in him that I'm aware of. And yet he has this attraction to everything Irish. He's walking up to these guys. He's throwing a little Gaelic out there, talking to them in Gaelic. These guys are from County Galloway. And I'm like, where the hell did he pick this up from? Well, that's, look, yeah, you know what they say, you know, bagpipes there, chick magnets in high school. That's uh, everyone's, play, you know, all, all the cool kids are playing their bagpipes. That's, that's, uh, that is commendable because that is not an easy instrument to play, I understand. No. And then uh, we were at, uh, before the parade proceedings, we were at the corner of 35th and Bell Boulevard. That's the heart of Bayside, the yep. diner. And guess who was holding court there because he was participating in the parade, coming out for his son, Andrew Giuliani, as he was gathering the signatures required to run uh, in the Republican primary for governor, Rudy Giuliani. And it was like he was the godfather. People were lined up out of the diner. Hey, can I speak with you, Rudy? I got this problem. Just like when he was mayor. Bayside, you know, Bayside is a, is a, that's, you're going to get a lot of votes. You know, it, it's had some Democratic representation. Tony Avella represented it for a while. But I can tell you from experience, I only represent a little bit of Bayside Hills. I didn't have Bayside proper. But you would think that um, that that Giuliani would do well. I ran into Mayor Giuliani here, here at the at the Red Apple Studios uh, this week, and he was telling me the most the the question I was interested in is Andrew enjoying it. Because a lot of people fake it, and a lot of people say, "Hey, I want to be mayor, I want to be governor, I want to be a councilman," but they don't like the act of campaigning. You've been out with him; it seems it seems from his dad, he really enjoys the campaigning. Oh, he is a better retail uh, campaigner than his father was, wow. uh, even at the height of his campaigning against David Dinkins the second time. And I was with Rudy both times, eighty-eight and ninety-two, as he lost to Dinkins barely, and then he barely beat Dinkins. This kid, Andrew, is every crowd is a mosh pit. I'd say, Andrew, I don't think you want to go into that crowd. No, no, no. Like, remember when he was a kid at Yankee Stadium, high-fiving everybody? <laughs> uh, even amongst adversaries, because there was some hardcore Democrats there. He's in there. He's talking to them. So he's great in retail politics. And now we'll see what happens in the Republican primary if uh, four of them, three out of the four, qualify because Lee Zeldin has the party uh, nomination. Uh, that would mean Andrew Giuliani. That would mean uh, Rob Astorino and Harry Wilson, who's spending all this money on commercials. Uh, that's a four-way race. And we're still waiting to see what Andrew Cuomo does. Uh, a lot of people were asking me, hey, what do you think? What do you think Cuomo's going to do? Because that was a big Cuomo area, especially for his father. 
And I said, I have no idea. I think he's going the independent right in, uh, route and not challenging Hochul in the Democratic primary. But it was a spirited uh, display. A lot of people out, a lot of WABC listeners were asking me, how can you be here? Aren't you supposed to be on air with Anthony Weiner now? And I said, it's a split shift. Anthony's going solo the first hour. Uh, this way he develops his chops uh, because it's been a long time since you've been on talk radio. And then I join him for the second hour. And from what I heard, I didn't hear the whole thing, so I'll listen to it on a replay. But it sounded good to me. Well, I appreciate it. I, I did... I did not appreciate – well, that's not true. I did appreciate it. But until you're sitting here and kind of do it, the things that you so naturally do because you you do it as kind of like second nature, the 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 ease which you do press all the, the buttons literally and figurative and making a good radio program, it's not easy. Now, one of the things we spent a little time discussing here was what we saw. You know, we we're in this program they call left versus right when, in fact, you and I kind of – slalom in this middle area but you actually are working on an issue this week that there's some pretty clear dividing lines and that is this issue of the vaccine mandate i saw you were one of the first people out there when mayor adams said okay let's have the Kyrie exemption to say what about the kevin george mary what about the exemption for the rest of new yorkers i'm not 100 percent sure i understand the dividing line on this issue he is now saying that If you are a performer, not every private business, but just if you are a performer, and I'm using air quotes now, you are then exempt from the requirement that you get a vaccine. But if you are a regular employee of the city, you still have to get it, right? That you're still required to. And some people were fired for not getting it. And those people are saying, give me the Kyrie exemption. Is that basically what the issue is? Yeah, no, no, I think uh, the people is exemplified in Bayside, a lot of civil servants there. So a lot of people, retirees and also active civil service in the private sector that also has that vaccine mandate for businesses that have 100 or more employees. They were just saying, look, just retire the mandate for everybody. Yeah, we want to see Kyrie uh, play for the Nets. Yeah, we want to see Aaron Judge for the Yankees. Yeah, we want to see X number of Mets play because it's assumed uh, that the Mets have anywhere from six to seven of their starters who don't have vaccines, who would not be permitted uh, opening day at City Field uh, to open up with what is expected to be a very good year because of the uh, uh, the Daddy Warbucks who now owns them, Stephen Cohn. But what happened leading up to this is that the new mayor, Eric Adams, who uh, inherited the position of Bill de Blasio, who uh, had a double standard. So, for instance, if I was an athlete and I came in from the Chicago Bulls and I was not vaccinated, I would be able to play in Barclays Stadium or I'd be able to play in uh, Madison Square Garden. Yet, if the local Nick or the Brooklyn Net was not vaccinated, they would not be permitted to play. To me, that made no sense. But Eric Adams, instead of amending that and changing that, decided just to inherit it and support it. And then all of a sudden, with all the pressure coming about Kyrie Irving, we need him to get into the playoffs with Durant. And it seems like he did a pirouette, except he didn't do it for the civil servants and he didn't do it for the other private sector workers. And he did it outside of city, well, actually in the rotunda of City Field, uh, Stephen Cohen's uh, uh, team, the Mets in the Jackie Robinson Rotunda. And I got to tell you, uh, there was very little, if any, support for what he said. Well, wait a minute, but, let me, but what I don't understand is another way this could have been resolved is Kyrie could have gotten the vaccine. Of course, but he was staunchly opposed. To I it. know, but w- 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 this policy is this, we're contorting a policy for eight and a half million people yeah. for this 
this like a handful of people. And if it were not for the handful of people, well, actually, I shouldn't say that because there were 1,200 people who lost their jobs with the city with city government because they refused right up to the very end to get the shot. So I guess the, I guess I kind of disagree with this notion because and I was talking to my father about this today. In one case, they're the employees of the city of New York. You can make a rule for your employees because you want them to be, let's say, extra careful or extra safe. That doesn't necessarily apply to the private sector. Right. What's wrong with saying, okay, well, this is a weird thing because we have people coming in and out of the city performing this thing. Let's let those people have an exemption. But I one thing that I am completely flummoxed by why in in the NHL, for example, in hockey, 99 percent of people are are, have have been vaccinated. You've got only one person on the nets who hasn't been vaccinated. Why am I hearing nine, 10, 11 people on the local baseball teams? If these people care about their teammates, just get the shot. But they're not. And it's clear they're not. And uh, the owners and operators, Steinbrenner of the Yankees, he was represented by uh, uh, Levine, Levine uh, who had been the deputy mayor for right. Rudy Giuliani. He was at City Field. Uh, and then, of course, there's Steve Cohen. And this is what you talk about, the influence of a billionaire. He gave Eric Adams $1.5 million for a pack that he needed in that Democratic primary, because you know how close that was with ranked choice voting. It was neck and neck with Maya Wiley and also with uh, uh, Kathleen Garcia. So he needed that money. And there's no doubt in my mind that Stephen Cohen, through his uh, lobbyist or whomever, put the call in and said, hey, I got maybe six, seven players on opening day who can't play. You got to do something. Then we know Corey Johnson, the former speaker of the city council, uh, who's now a lobbyist, Lobbying for the Nets made a call to Eric Adams. He didn't admit that he was lobbied at first. Then he had to admit it when it became out publicly that Corey Johnson had lobbied him on behalf of the Nets. And it just seemed like, wait a second, you have civil servants who lost their jobs. When uh, they were put on the shelf, they could not go out and get any other employment. They're not capable of getting uh, unemployment. So basically, they're adrift. It's like you're doing it for millionaire sports players. Do it for the heroes, the civil servants. Remember, cops, firefighters, especially healthcare workers, sanitation workers, essential workers. And then look at all the private sector workers. How are you going to say, and we're the only big city that still has this in place, where if you have a place of business with 100 or more uh, employees, they have to be vaccinated. How are you going to say when when they challenge you in court, well, this is for uh, sports players and performers on Broadway or in concerts, but not for the private sector employees. You're going to lose that case. Well, but, uh, let's. I, I believe that he is vulnerable on the lawsuit, except for one thing. One is a group of, of city employees that he has control over that he can say, I have different rules in the private sector. I think, I mean, look, let's keep some things in perspective. One 250th of the city workforce lost their job over this. And I'm concerned about the people that did get their vaccine. Those people did what they were supposed to do under the rules of their employment. And I don't have a problem with if someone wants to not follow the rules of employment, they lose their job over it. I don't know why we're advocating for the people who are not doing the rules of employment and forgetting about the people that did it. I don't get that. As far well, as I'll give you an example. Go ahead. Here's Kyrie Irving. We know that because he was not vaccinated, he should not be playing in any sports venue in the five boroughs of the city of New York. He practices at the Nets' uh, brand-new arena in Sunset Park, you know, in that whole yeah. time. Industry City, I think, right? And the mayor was asked about that. He said, you know, Kyrie Irving's over there practicing with the Nets. Uh, what are you going to do about that? 
And he acted like he didn't hear what was being said. He knows that. So there's a clear double standard already in full effect. Well, the double standard is that we're trying to make rules to, to, to help Kyrie Irving, but I don't believe it's because some lobbyist called him or even someone gave him a donation. It's because the Nets are knocking at the door of an eight seed here, and frankly, they, have, know, a, they have a chance of winning a championship. I mean, look, I, here's what I think. Your number one donor. Stephen Cohen, owner of the Mets, a guy who I believe should have gone to jail for insider trading. Prepahara had him on the ropes and let him glow. But anyway, he... I'm, I'm, I'm not a big... Look, I'm a, I'm a big fan of his checkbook and, and, and signing pictures. I'm not a big fan of I, him individually. But I, I get that, but... He was the biggest donor to Eric Adams' I campaign. I get it, I get it, but sometimes just because... Yes, but the pressure that he was getting... You know, listen to the callers to WABC, listen to the callers to sports radio, listen to the fans outside of the Barclays Center. The pressure that Eric Adams was getting was that this thing made made very little sense on its face. But if we put the, again, and I like to do this and sometimes it frustrates you, I know, put the perception aside. What this comes down to is us trying to make a policy decision on how we make the workplace as safe as we as, as can and reasonably reopen our economy as well. One of the easiest ways to do that is for people to get vaccines. It's easy. It, it, it protects the people in the workplace and allows us to open up the, um, the economy. So at any time here, Kyrie Irving could have gotten a shot. So I, and, and by the way, millions of New Yorkers have, uh, thousands of, of NBA basketball players have, thousands of professional athletes have, and he chose not to do it. So before we get to, oh, Eric Adams did this and he got this donation, remember, this came as a situation of the tail wagging the dog. One dude... And who chased Harden out of town for being disrespectful, you know, because Harden says, I don't want any part of this, this, this zoo where this one guy won't, won't help us get to the playoffs because he, 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 he believes something he, he, he read buried in a website somewhere. I mean, it is on this guy. He created this, this circumstance. Eric Adams, I, I grant you, inherited a more tight, a tighter regime than any other city in, in the country. And I'm sure he would have wished that there were not the private mandate. However... It did reduce our, our incidence of COVID. It did make, make people safer. And now it was all about us trying to satisfy one dude, Kyrie Irving, and a bunch of baseball Yeah, players. but all he had to do at City Field was say, you know something, we're doing it first for those sports participants and those performers on the stage. And in a month, uh, we're going to look to just roll it all back in the public sector and the privacy. He didn't say that. He said everything but the month part. Let me tell you something. When he was asked about the uh, civil servants, he had disdain. When you look at the film from his press conference, there was a look of disdain on his face. Like he he's taking this personally, that they would not get the vaccine. It's time for him to put all that aside. He's losing on this issue. And with high crime not being curtailed at all, uh, it's a double hampering to the start of his administration. He's not even in the first hundred days of his administration. This is not going over well with the public, and obviously he hasn't been able to get a grip on the crime problem. Well, I, I agree with you. If uh, Knowing what we know now, I think firing that, is it 1,500 or 12? I keep saying 1,200. I think it's closer to 1,500 employees for not getting a shot probably was overkill. I think it was overkill. Now, they had to figure out a way to make sure that everyone knew they were serious and they make make sure that everyone did this thing. It was very important, but I think it was overkill and I think they probably didn't need to go that far. That's the hand he was dealt. Now he's trying to figure out how to do it. Now, I read him say, I'm going to keep looking at everything every day and there might be things, some things going to roll back. But you're right. Well, no, no, he was defiant. He said, go ahead, take me to court. I'm going to win in court. To right. both the private but- sector workers... 
who are employed on Fifth Avenue, Madison Avenue, in the office buildings, and also to obviously the civil service. I think he he is going to have a problem, but I think probably before any of this gets resolved in the court, I think that he's expressed a, a willingness to keep looking at this thing moment by moment. But there, I, I, I will agree with you. You know what he's going to look at. Going to look at his poll. If he drops ten points, oh, guess what? We're rolling back the mandates on vaccines. Well, there's another scenario. If we have another outbreak, suddenly it's not going to look very sympathetic to be letting a bunch of baseball players have a standard that we don't have. Exactly. You know, it it, it may look in, in in the other direction. Well, let's open up the phone lines. One eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. That's one eight hundred eight four eight WABC. As we bifurcated today, first hour, Anthony Weiner solo. I'm back from the St. Patrick's Day parade in Bayside, where our colleague Rudy Giuliani just stole the parade. They were just all over Rudy Giuliani exclusively here on WABC. It's the left versus the right. It's a 77 WABC debate. Heavyweight slugfest. 77 WABC. It's the left versus the right in the right corner. It's heavyweight king Curtis Lewa in the left corner. It's Anthony Weiner. See, as a uh, white boy growing up in Brooklyn, I could imagine you, uh, Anthony Weiner, there with your air guitar playing hacky sack with your Brooklyn tech crew. No, we did ult. <laughs> You're this very, is Funk Forty Nine. You are very, you are very close. F- ultimate frisbee. Ah, because because John Katzenbetis would appreciate this on the roof of uh, of Brooklyn Tech. There's like this enclosed area that's kind of this almost you know you know how big that building is almost the size of a football field. And we used to play ultimate frisbee up there. I am a bit of a cliche about how. By the way, in high school, I also had my hair very long. I would wear. Yeah, headbands. you had a fro. You had yeah. what, what we call then a Jew fro. Totally. Totally. And it's incredible because if you had gone across the street in Fort Greene Park where the monument is, the modest monument, you might have gotten mugged there. That was a rough place. So we would not go any further than the steps. <laughs> uh, and that's where we'd, we'd hang out there. Sometimes, I hate to say it, sometimes with a 40, sometimes maybe with something else. Um, but you're right. You wouldn't go much further than that. Now, uh, there is compromise in the air, though, because some of those guys, those young men uh, who had started committing crime, would uh, eventually end up possibly uh, being denied uh, any bail and being remanded to Rikers Island. There is a proposal coming from some of the unions uh, to the uh, Eric Adams administration. It's saying, look, don't build these new community jails that $8 billion is being put aside for in Chinatown, uh, Lower Brooklyn, uh, Regal Park, uh, Kew Gardens, uh, and also in the Bronx. Uh, Staten Island was exempted. How they got that uh, exemption, uh, I'll never know what kind of a deal was worked out with Jimmy Otto, the former borough president, (laughs) and Bill de Blasio. But, uh, and instead, knock down the existing structure in Rutgers Island. Uh, There's like five out of the ten facilities that are open and operating. I know I've been locked up there enough times. uh, I could almost tell you what the place is like. Uh, And then build a brand-new facility, series of jails, maybe even with uh, an arraignment center. They actually have a court so that the only people you have to transport are the lawyers who will all be complaining, whether they're defending uh, the accused or they are part of the uh, ADAs. Uh, but I think that's a um, a compromise that'll go over well, uh, as opposed to uh, putting these jails in communities. Yeah, well, the, it, you say put it in communities. 
it's really the idea is to have the people that are waiting, processing, waiting trial to be close to where those trials and where that processing will will be. Right now, you know, these buses plow through the city, plow from Queens into the various boroughs, transporting prisoners. Um, Correction officers spend a lot of time doing it. It's takes it's very time consuming. Very often they don't do it. And frankly, that and and you you have you have judges, prosecutors, defense attorneys waiting for um, for the accused to show up, and they never do. And the thinking being, let's make this smart, and also let's make it closer to where the families are. And I want to reset the table on this. Remember who's at Rikers. Rikers are there are some short term people who is who are doing actual short sentences less but, than a year. If they right, get a but by yes. and large. But by and large, the people on Rikers, and we've been having a conversation about no cash bail, people on Rikers are people who are awaiting trial. And sometimes that can be a very long time. The, the constitutional notion of a speedy trial is something that, we, that has been elusive in New York City for quite some time. And so the thinking is, let's have these buildings and these people close to where their families are, close to where the courthouse were, and so you basically are not transporting them as far. But remember, this proposal was at a time when the jail population was at a record low, that crime was way down, arrests were way down, de-incarceration was the flavor of the moment. Now we're at a situation where we have to figure out what to do with Rikers. And there's one other question that gets raised here. Rikers is falling apart. Rikers, as you know, because you've spent time there, Rikers was built on landfill, sometimes garbage landfill, and it's shifting uh, hundreds and hundreds of of, uh, of cell doors don't even close. Plexiglass is falling off the walls, being turned into shivs left and right. If the physical plant is falling apart, and the question is, if we do have to go invest all this money, and we're going to have to do even more now if you're going to get rid of cash bail and you start arresting more people, et cetera. If we're going to do that, maybe we can reconceive this in a way that makes more sense. That was the argument around the neighborhood prisons being closer to the courthouses. Now, I get that's not popular, but the concept makes some sense. All right, but imagine if you build a court right on Rikers Island to handle the arraignments, the initial processing. Because as you know, Anthony, most cases never go to trial. They get plea bargained out. People would be amazed that you're talking about 95% of the cases of the times that a man or a woman is arrested for a crime. It never goes to court. It never goes before a judge. And a selection of a jury uh, to adjudicate whether they're innocent or guilty. They're plea bargained out. So the ADA sits down, if uh, it happens to be a court-appointed lawyer, or if it happens to be a private attorney that's been hired uh, by the accused, and they work out a deal. This is what ADAs do all the time. They just, you know, they're, they're basically exchanging papers. Why can't that all be done in one big jailhouse out on Rikers Island? And yet, you still have the courthouses available for when people do opt to go for a trial, because a lot of times the defendant will say, no, I want to go to trial. I'm well, not going to take this plea. Yeah, no, there, there, there's something to that. I think, frankly, that's an enormous amount of infrastructure that you're moving out to that island. And it's not that that island is such a desirable place. Remember, we, we, we used to put, you know, it was on, I think it was on Roosevelt Island before Rikers Island was built. You know, we put them to get them kind of where we society out of mind, out of, uh, out of sight, out of mind. Um, and by the way, and, and I don't want to get off on a tangent— 95% plea bargain, a lot of that, and I say this from personal experience, is because of the trial penalty. Sure. Meaning that prosecutors sit down and say, listen, we might not have you dead to rights, but if you agree now to take a two-year thing, we won't put you on trial for a 15-year thing. Yes. And sometimes that can be a very compelling argument, I can say from personal experience. And also, a lot of the accused uh, who don't um, 
uh, are not able to follow everything that's taking place uh, may get charged with a felony. Then it gets knocked down to a misdemeanor, uh, then to petty larceny. And if the uh, personality is strong enough, they could go right before the judge and say, uh, look, uh, my attorney, uh, ADA, I'd be more than happy to take a plea disorderly conduct. And everyone right. is happy. Oh, okay. We end this case. And right. Within six months, it disappears from my no, record. No, I, I think that that's right. But, but think about the different areas of the system that are already choking. And we've been having a conversation about putting more people in that system by, by eliminating this, by rolling back the, the yeah. no cash bail, Correct. by saying let's get these people off the trains and add, you know, off the streets. A lot of those people are winding up going through Rikers for better or for worse. We, you know, one of the things I talked about in the first hour was the idea of like once you're done with the headline story, there's a lot of context you have to fill in. Very few people have followed this to the next logical step. I mean, okay, are we prepared to spend a heck of a lot of money in getting Rikers up to snuff? But also, it's not just Rikers. You've got you've got um, you've got defense attorneys for the for the indigent. You've got prosecutors that need to be hired because now there's more prosecutions. You've got the changes in the law that were recently made that sounded very good on their face. Let's make sure that the defense has every bit of information, um, every bit of discovery in a reasonable period of time. And now a lot of cases are being thrown out because it turned out that that was maybe an unreasonable expectation that all of that will happen in a fast way. This is a, a very expensive process. And it was easy to talk about let's try to figure out a way to speed this up. When crime was low. Well, let me tell you, uh, from the physical layout, having been locked up on Rikers Island in the 80s and early 90s, uh, before Rudy Giuliani was elected mayor and then he stopped uh, police from harassing the guardian angels and arresting us, there's, most guys are in dormitories. Now, there are women and then there are transgenders. So you really have three categories. They've tried to remove all the teenagers out of there because they actually created the most problems. They were the most rambunctious. But most guys are in a dormitory. So there are 40 guys in a dormitory. Generally, a small woman, uh, African-American, is there as a correctional officer with a body alarm because he can't have any weapons in case it gets taken used against them. The guys are not rambunctious with the women. They are rambunctious if you put a male correctional officer there. They want to test their metal. Then you have single cells, eight by four. Sometimes you share a cell. Then you have Punk City, protective custody. That's for snitches sometimes and for inmates who might get hurt in the general population. And then you have what's been discontinued solitary confinement. That's for somebody who is uh, irascible, is causing all kinds of problems for the correctional officers and other inmates. And so they would be uh, incarcerated 23 hours a day in a single cell and let out one hour for rec, but privately, so it's not mixed with the general population. The biggest thing you need to fix is the circulation. Uh, every smell imaginable that humans emit, there's no circulation in the jails. They're so old that that's part of the problem is it's not good for the correctional officers. It's not good for all the other workers there, the medical personnel, the psychiatrists, or for the inmates themselves. I can yeah. tell you from personal experience. Well, that's where you left out one, one collection area where human beings are being kept, and that is in the processing hold which is supposed to be something you're in for a couple of hours while they get the paperwork in order and then put you in one of those other cells. Now guys are staying in there for two, three days at a time, and they're being given plastic bags to defecate in, and guys are taking turns sleeping on the, on the one flat surface that they have. But here's the real tough problem, and I don't know the, the answer to this. There is such an enormous amount of, of men and women correction officers taking both vacation and just being AWOL 
And by their telling of it is they're exhausted. They're leaving in droves. This is a problem across the country that they're having staffing problems in in correctional facilities all across the country. So that guys that used to, uh, you know, a a dormitory setting that used to have three officers now has one CO there. And if they get called away because there's a fight somewhere, then no one is there. This is a problem. You know, it, it, it was not a problem the the net amount of staffing that has been assigned, the people that are on the payroll to to mind Rikers Island is probably sufficient in my view. But the combination of capacity, the fact that the building's falling apart, I mean, doors won't even lock. The fact that buildings are falling apart and the fact that the staff is so overworked and so demoralized that they're not showing up for work. This is a crisis situation here, and it's only getting worse because more people are saying, lock them up and throw away the key. Well, what they mean is send them to Rikers. Well, let's open up our phone lines, 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. When we return here, uh, Anthony, let's go to the phones because I see there are a number of callers that have all different uh, issues that they would like to comment on. Uh, And also, more importantly, I notice you have your New York Metcap on here. So I'm assuming that you uh, also, like so many Met fans, uh, have illusions of grandeur, of success, and only to be disappointed as you work your way into the fall season. Curtis, repeat after me. The Mets are undefeated in 22. Undefeated. I don't know mine. one 800 It's the left versus the right. It's a 77 WABC debate. Heavyweight slugfest. 77 WABC. It's the left versus the right in the right corner. It's heavyweight king Curtis Lewa in the left corner. It's Anthony Weiner. Oh, it's Electric Avenue. What a song here, Anthony Weiner. It affects the price of gasoline, the price of electricity, and the movement towards electric cars. But uh, on this, by the way, this is my 68th birthday, Anthony. Today? I'm 68 years old. Oh, my goodness. I had no idea. Happy birthday. Well, nobody thought I'd make it past 28. There were a lot of guys out there trying to make sure that I didn't. But I made it to 68. Uh, I'm not quite yet showing uh, signs of aging. But I got to ask you about our president, Joe Biden, who's in Poland. Uh, earlier today, he was with Polish leaders. And it's reported that he said to all of them that Putin cannot remain in power. Now, that suggests regime change. Immediately, the White House had to scurry and said, no, that's not what the president meant. This comes on the heels of the day before he was with the 82nd Airborne, sitting with them. Uh, having a meal, a pizza, you know, just having a small talk with him. But then when he was speaking to a group of uh, the young men and young women, he was saying to them, uh, you'll soon see when you're in Ukraine exactly what's going on. And then the White House had to, uh, again, backtrack and no, 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 American troops are not going into the Ukraine. What is it about our president that he misspeaks so often that the White House's primary function at times is just to walk back what he has just said publicly? I don't know how to how to view this issue. You know, this has always been the way he has been. Remember when some of his early campaigns were derailed? In one case, it wasn't even from misspeaking for appropriating someone else's story. Gaps are kind of a thing with him. I am someone who likes to step back and say, okay, does it matter? 
And for the most part, someone stepping on, you know, doing a malapropism or whatever doesn't matter all that much. We giggle about it. If we're Democrats, we giggle at, at you know, at, at George W. Bush doing it. If we're Republicans, we giggle at Biden doing it. The problem is in this environment where the, the Russians are so adept at taking little kernels of things and spinning them into something that they're clearly not, but they're, you know, but doing a good job. You know, the thing about Russian propaganda is there's always a hint of a kernel of truth in the very essence of it, but they're completely misinterpreting it. I think it could be problematic. I think at the end of the day, it doesn't amount to much. And I also am confused. I'm also want to be careful. Sometimes Biden misspeaks and sometimes it's his stutter that is just he slurs as something. And it's someone who had a speech impediment when he was young and still from time to time it comes out again. I am sensitive to not giving the guy grief if he has a speech impediment. But I think that it could be a problem. I, I don't think it's a made up thing. I think it was a real thing when W did it. And I think it's a real thing when Biden does it, whether it matters to people listening to this broadcast who want to know, like, is it going to hurt them, I don't know. I, I don't think giving giving Putin these little things to hang his hat on is helpful. Well, uh, yeah, imagine you, Vladimir Putin. What is he saying? That yeah. I should be sacked? It should be insurrection, regime change? But anyway, we got a lot of phone calls here. Let's go, if we can, to Glenn and Hillside. Your turn to be heard here with Anthony Weiner and yours truly, Curtis Lee, on WABC, Glenn. Yeah, good afternoon, fellas. Uh, first, before I make my comment uh, about uh, Adams rescinding the uh, uh, the, Mac- the vaccine mandate, uh, I want to say to you, Curtis, happy birthday. At 68, mm. you're doing great. When you're 69, you'll be doing fine. When you're <laughs> 70, it'll be like he- you'll be like heaven. When you're <laughs> 71, you'll be far from done. When you're 72, you'll feel like new. Okay? There you go. <laughs> but uh, with Eric Adams... You know, what it is is that uh, he's uh, made a decision. It's jocks over cops. It's pro teams over teachers. And his explanation is that, oh, well, the visiting team, uh, th- their stars don't have to be vaccinated, and we're at a disadvantage. All right? I don't know, uh, you know whether they promised uh, you know, to give them uh, uh, courtside uh, seats or uh, box seats at uh, Yankee Stadium, but – he should have turned around and said, no, this is the this is the policy. Uh, if they're not vaccinated, the NYPD, we'd be more than happy to turn around and say, you're not coming into the arena or the stadium. All right. Um, so that's the policy. Well, he could have he could have changed the initial de Blasio uh, double standard for visiting ball players uh, and performers, which is. You, too, have to be vaccinated or you cannot enter our arenas. It's not. You keep saying the double standard, but let's remember it is is people that work here in the city for big companies. You're saying, well, in Portland, they have a different rule. No, it's people that work here for big companies. That's the rule that we're we're saying. What makes a lot of sense and made a lot of – well, it made sense at the time. Now, remember, we're extreme. We're the outlier. There aren't a lot of cities. I don't think there's any other major league city that has that kind of a mandate. No longer, right. But if you decide that that will be helpful in making our our infection rate lower, protecting our citizens, and helping us to reopen faster – that's what you should be making policy on. Who cares if someone comes in from Portland as a different standard? I can't control them. I can say to my employers now, let's stop. It, it is not heroes versus cops. I mean, um, basketball players versus cops. It is one unvaccinated guy on, on, on the nets versus one 250th of the city employment. 
I, I think that the policy is not the problem, but there is no doubt that it created this it created this inconsistency that made it hard for people to understand. Let's go to Frankie and Glendale. Your turn to be heard here with Anthony Weiner and yours truly, Curtis Lee on WABC. Uh, Frankie. Good afternoon. That previous quarter took took the wind out of my sails here. Happy birthday, Curtis. I can't repeat what I want to say. But anyway, look, gentlemen. Uh, oh, here's another thing. Uh, 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 shout out to... Uh, uh, Joey and Ronkakuma, and I want to get a Curtis and a Wiener cap. We worked that out with. Uh, I need that. Let's go. Get let's get a Curtis and Wiener cap. Uh, all right. There's a lot of talk about closing uh, down Rikers Island. After we close it down and and put the jails out into every borough, what's going to happen to Rikers Island? Uh, what are we going to do? Turn it into a garbage dump? Or are we going to turn it into something else? I'd, I'd really like to hear. Nobody's been talking about what's going to happen to Rikers after. Well, well, Frankie, uh, if you notice, you come in off Steinway Street through Astoria, and then you go right onto the island over the bridge. There's only one way in, one way out. You're right next to LaGuardia Airport, one of the tarmacs. You can almost reach out and touch. If not for uh, the uh, uh, the uh, problems uh, of uh, the uh, the waters, that would consume you if you try to uh, swim over to the uh, tarmac. Uh, you you you'd be able to take a little dinghy right over there and catch your flight. That that would be ripe for apartment buildings. The scenic view is amazing. Uh, you're right next to the uh, Triborough Bridge, uh, and you can see the entire city skyline. That that would be a massive development and developers would be looking their chops to be able to build on that site. Well, you know, and now that you, now that you mentioned, I haven't given this a lot of thought, there must be proposals out there for what to do with it, but you're right. Unlike most of the islands of New York, and we have hundreds of islands around New York and unlike governor Island, for example, it's got infrastructure, right? The real thing that developers lack in a lot of these little islands that are around is any infrastructure. It would have that. I think it, it, it's all – remember, it's, it's, it was a landfill in the worst sense of the word. Like, it wasn't really thought through. It was, a lot of it is garbage underneath there. But I imagine if you did put it out to bid, someone would come up with a way – I mean, it's very close, very close to LaGuardia. And an inordinate number of rats. Now, they estimate there's about eight rats in the city of New York for every one citizen. You know, as you go. You mean snitches or the actual rats? Uh, well, not that many rats who eat Parmesan cheese, the two legged <laughs> type. But the four legged type, they estimate there's about eight rats for every one citizen in New York. And assuming there's eight million plus, you can imagine how many rats. When I've been on Rikers Island, they're dancing. They're dancing the horror, the tarantella, they're doing the crib dance. It's incredible rat colonies out there. So you would have to deal with that. But I think the developers would lick their chops the best. The other thing is just declare it to be a park. Declare it to be a park. It could be a city park, state park. And like Randall's Island, when you go to Randall's Island, people don't realize how many fields are out there where people play. Uh, the few remaining people who play baseball, but it's soccer fields. Uh, they're playing uh, volleyball, all kinds of activities. Well, Governor's out Island, there. Governor's Island's the same way. You know, it's it's it's. You know, uh, Pat Moynihan called it the sixth borough. That's now in our in our control. It's another instance. You know, not everything has to be developed into something. You know, one of the great decisions we've always made, city planners here in New York, um, we we made our neighborhood parks, we made Central Park, we made Prospect Park, we made Flushing Meadows Park. It, it it could do worse. But we are in the same situation. You know, look, your idea of saying let's just completely rehab it and put courthouses out there, there's a certain wisdom to that. I'm, I'm, I think that that now the, the problem is 
Transit is only part of the problem. The backlog is out there for a lot of reasons beyond just that it's stuck out there in the middle of nowhere. There is such a backlog right now that guys are are waiting 12, 12 months, 18 months a year. You You know, a router who committed suicide, he was finally released after 18 months and committed suicide because the the harm that came to him psychologically from being there was traumatic, and it's going to get worse. I think New Yorkers have to realize, even when we're done with this conversation about no cash bail, we have to figure out what to do with Rikers. Let's go to Sheila in Queens. Your turn to be heard here on WABC, Sheila. Yes, hi. Oh, I'm so glad. Uh, Curtis, I, I'm a landlord in Flushing, Queens. I um, I rent 13 apartments. Three of them are in that emergency rental assistance program and uh one tenant nine months has not paid rent and um we got into court finally i i hired a lawyer we got into court um third time in court i'm told that uh, they were given a legal illegal aid and um they are now in got into the erap program that erap program um the, the uh, lost its funding back in September of 21, and Governor Hochul continues and tells them to continue to take applications for this program. I am in a tivy. I, I, well, I well, let's uh, uh, Anthony, I'm sure, has dealt with these issues when he was a councilman and a congressman. We have uh, a lot of smaller landlords, not the mega landlords. Uh, they have like 13 tenants, like Sheila or less. And all during the lockdown and the pandemic, uh, oftentimes they would get no rent because people were not working. And uh, they had to line up to try to get subsidies from the government. Some did, some didn't. But now there are continuing to be people who are saying they can't pay their rent. Uh, but these landlords are being told, but you got to pay your property tax. you got to pay for water. you got to pay uh, for all the uh, services. The utilities can't be turned off. And they just feel that they're being driven out out of the city. They may have to sell their property and just move like some other people are moving out of the city, lock, stock, and barrel. Yeah, I mean, Sheila is the example of kind of the forgotten landlord in this conversation we usually have in the city. You know, we think of developers. We think of these big, these big muscular political forces in New York. Sheila is part of a much small, a much, a, a much more common thing, especially in the neighborhoods that you and I grew up in. Look, the bottom line is that it's much cheaper for us, the taxpayer, to pay to keep someone in an apartment and to subsidize their rent than it is to deal with them once they become homeless. And so the way to do that is to say to landlords like Sheila, we'll backfill the rent, but you, Sheila, have to make sure that you're living up to the standards of being a decent landlord. For the most part, that program works, but it needs to be refund- it needs to be continually funded. And we also have to say something else. You, the tenant... You don't get a complete free ride. You still have to make up as much as you can based on what your income is. You still have to process the paperwork to get the ERAP program. You still have to go through this motion. You can't just sit on your hands and wait for an eviction notice to come before you get help. But the the math, and a lot of people are like, wait, why are we paying to, to keep people in their homes? Because the alternative is to pay, them when, to, to pay for services once they're homeless, which is much more expensive. Our number is 1-800-848-9222. It's Anthony Weiner on the left. Yours truly, Curtis Lee, we're here on the right. If you couldn't hear the entirety of the program, Anthony Weiner going solo in the first hour, and then me joining him for our number two, you can always get it on the podcast anytime instead of appointment radio, which it is every Saturday from 2 to 4 exclusively here on WABC. It's the left 
versus the right. It's a 77 WABC debate. Heavyweight Slugfest. 77 WABC. It's the left versus the right in the right corner. It's heavyweight king Curtis Lewa in the left corner. It's Anthony Weiner. Oh, no, this is Springsteen. Oh, God, I hate the boss. I hate Springsteen. Uh, by the way, talk who can, about... Who can hate the boss? Well, here's his uh, narrative. You know, blue-collar, working-class guy, freehold. Then all of a sudden, he's in Rumson. He's one of the one percenters on the Jersey Shore. And to take advantage of tax loopholes, a man of the peeps, he declares that a lot of the land that he now uh, resides on is a farm. And I don't know if he uh, has a fig tree there. I don't know if he grows some uh, tomatoes. But he gets to write off a sizable amount of that property along with Bon Jovi. Uh, Man of the peeps. Let me tell you. You know, if, if, you, if, you, if you sing the songs that he does, I'm going to give him a pass. And uh, good for him. Good for him making a few, making a few, a few bucks here. I, 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 don't, I don't hold it against well, him. Can you imagine? Here it is. You have Chris Christie who has gone to uh, about 128 East Street Band uh, performances all over the world, and Bruce Springsteen will not even acknowledge him. Now, that guy's got to be the biggest groupie uh, that the world has ever known, never to be acknowledged by the guy that he extols the virtues of. But this is a bigger question, is the interplay between someone's political views and the art that they create. I mean, all the time I'm hearing that some song I like or some artist that I like is a jerk politically, and I don't know what to do about it. I don't know how to how to make. Hey, Alex Ovechkin, am I supposed to root for him to to, mm. to break Gretzky's record now when his when his to his Twitter icon was well, well, basically you, a, a Putin? You don't strike me as a Pink Floyd fan. Uh, it's okay, Magic Magic Poco Poco. I I I actually recalled going to the Wall tour. I okay. think I, I went. Right. I think I went All to right. the so uh, at National Coliseum. You know the leader of Pink Floyd. Roger Waters. Uh, Roger is for the boycott of uh, Israel products. He will not perform Perfect in Israel. example. Perfect example. I mean, these things are, I, I, I don't know how to, I mean, I'm, I find myself, but, but music is a little bit different. You know, music then takes a place in your life that when you hear bad things about the artist, it's hard to, un, it's hard to tear out that song from your, your playlist, your personal internal playlist. This is this is complicated. I, I don't I don't know how to I don't know how to I, you know, the 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 other day my son Jordan was watching Ovechkin who's having an amazing season despite his age, and he's like I want to watch that highlight again. I said you know he's he's Putin's buddy. Oh, tight, very tight. very tight. He might as well be a Putin oligarch. And he's and Jordan's like I don't care. I love watching him play hockey, and I'm like that's a perfectly reasonable position. Let's go uh, to Larry who's calling from Brooklyn. Uh, your turn to be heard here on WABC, Larry. All right, Curtis, first thing I want to do is wish you a happy birthday. The second thing is, this morning you wanted to know, this is your life, that was Ralph Edwards. What, what, yes, yes, I'm Ralph Edwards. Is, 1,000, imagine, Anthony Weiner, I did a, a little theater of the mind where Ralph Edwards was uh, introducing This Is Your Life. Uh, that show was so famous and so well-viewed, it had 1,000 episodes before it no longer existed on TV. Wow. 
calling you. They, they want to close the VA hospitals. One is in Brooklyn, which is located right off the Bell Parkway. Hamilton. The second one is on 23rd Street and in Newport, Long Island. And I'd like to know if you would know who's the brainchild that wants to close these uh, facilities. It's been, those have been on, well, at least the one in Manhattan has been on the chopping block for three administrations now. They have been coming at, look, there has been a retrenchment at the VA, and there's a philosophy that is Democrat and Republican. Both have advocated for this idea of trying to move veterans out of the traditional VA system and get them into something more like Medicare of some sort. And it's been a bad idea. It's always been a bad idea. And it's a violation of the fundamental compact that we made with veterans about the care that they were going to get. We said that if you answer the call, you are going to have a dedicated health care system for yourselves that deals with the unique problems that veterans face, that, re- that those returning from the front face, that those develop y- years after they return from service. And this, to close those VA facilities, would be a violation. I don't care if it's a Biden proposal. I don't care if it's Obama proposal or if it's a Trump proposal. It's a bad idea, and we should all join arms in fighting it. Now, though, with the uh, reduction in the veteran population, though, so let's just look at the five boroughs. So you have Fort Hamilton, which has probably been the most familiar to people because they see it when they go back and forth uh, across the Verrazano Bridge to Staten Island. So you have Fort Hamilton. Then you have St. Albans in Queens. Correct. Then you have Kingsbridge uh, uh, up north of the Armory uh, in the Bronx. So you have those three, and then you have Midtown Manhattan, 23rd Street, which he mentioned. So you have four facilities in four of the five boroughs. But the population of veterans has been depleted because, remember, uh, you now have a professional military. You have to uh, want to be a member of the military. There isn't a draft, although there are obviously still people alive when the draft took place who would be covered by this. Do you think that the shrinkage should take place because there are less and less veterans who need services? Well, there are fewer and fewer people coming back in wartime with problems, but that doesn't mean that they still are not veterans that need health care. And if a veteran – it's always been the case that if a veteran chose to be – to get their care through Medicare, they could. They could always do that. And and yes, I mean certainly there are fewer and fewer down to handfuls of World War II veterans – but there were enormous amount of, of veterans that came back from the Gulf War. There are ones that came back from Afghanistan. There are ones that are, that are going to come back year by year in these different engagements we get in. The question is really this. Yes, w- is the demand changing? For sure. But we are still a city of 8.5 million people that has more than enough demand for distinct specialized care for those returning. And if we don't want con- to live up to that contract, then let's say that. Let's say that we are going to let down the contract that we made with veterans, but I think we should uphold it by keeping the facilities open. Let's go to George in Rockland. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, George. All right. So happy birthday, Curtis. Okay. So uh, I was listening to you, Anthony, in the previous hours, and this man was calling, and you were talking to him about companies not paying uh, their taxes. At least he claimed that they do. Okay. So I just want to raise something here. Okay. Uh, companies, uh, small as large, have many, many uh, tax loopholes that are not available to uh, employees. Okay, for example, okay, um, you know, you can deduct your machinery, you can deduct, uh, you know, the building, 
there are many, many things that are not available. Now, I don't say they are not leveraged there, okay, but by the time it comes to pay, many of them just uh, pay very little or not at all, okay? And obviously, as bigger as you are, as more chances are, uh, you know, there are some uh, tax loopholes for specific... Well, hold on, hold on a second, uh, George, because we're running out of time. I think the most egregious, uh, Anthony is when you look at an Amazon or you look at Facebook and all of a sudden uh, their primary office is in Dublin, Ireland, or it's in Liechtenstein, or or it's in Copenhagen, and you say, wait, you don't do most of your business there, but for tax purposes, it's a tax shelter. The way Delaware, uh, actually Wilmington, became a tax shelter for Fortune 500 companies here in the United States. Look, George's premise is exactly right. Big corporations have access to tax breaks that we don't have. I don't say that companies don't pay taxes, period. But the real question should be in this day and age when we're all struggling and when gas prices are through the roof, should companies that make 30, 40, 50 billion dollars in quarterly profits, should we not tax those profits? Not things that that's profits means after all their expenses are paid, after they paid their CEO, should we not tax those profits and return some of that to working class uh, uh, Americans? I think we should. Well, you had a bifurcated uh, left and right program. Anthony started it off going solo. Then I joined him for the second hour. Uh, my son, I've got to return to him to see him struggle and playing the bagpipes. And then i got to go out and enjoy my 68th birthday, I hope Anthony. he can play happy birthday on the bagpipes. I'll be impressed. Thank you.